0: This conference will now be recorded
1: okay thank you thanks for joining the call today. This is part two of our product liability risk control um, today we'll focus on uh, risk uh, li- product liability risk that really covers like civil uh, potentially criminal uh, legal implications and that's why we have Adam here um, so we'll talk about the current signs and trends. Um, and really indications in the cannabis space that are tied to the product liability risk. So um, good morning and good afternoon, good evening. I'm Bethany Carney, and I'll be acting as like the host for this call. So I have you all placed on mute and I'll continue to do that. But of course, if you have comments or have questions that come up during the conversation, please um, shoot me a comment in the chat um, and after John and Adam share information with us, we'll have plenty of time for discussions where I'll unmute all of you. Um, and I encourage your participation in that discussion so that we can make sure that this topic is relevant for you and your organizations. I'm gonna start here with the introductions of our presenters on the call today. John Malave is the CEO of QA Canna. QA CANA is a quality assurance consulting firm. That was established to solve complex problems in the cannabis space and help execute critical projects across the industry. Adam, who's new here with us at QA Canna, um, is a tested litigator and multifaceted um, in a multifaceted legal practice, Goldberg Sagala, and he heads the cannabis and hemp law group. So while he's also defending clients in a wide range of claims. Um, Goldberg Sagala has an international footprint, although they're headquartered here in the US. They have over 400 attorneys in their practice. So uh, thank you, gentlemen, for participating today and joining us uh, and bringing your expertise to this discussion. Glad to be here. So uh, John's going to kick us off with a a brief recap from our part one session of product liability. We're going to talk through the appropriate response for customer complaints. We'll go through some guidance on product claims and warranty of merchantability and end the discussion here today with what we're defining as the true risks of liability for our customers and a few case studies that Adam has discussed with us to really support this. So John, if you wouldn't mind kicking us off here to run through what we discussed in part one, that'd be
0: great. Thanks. Sure, thanks, Bethany. And, and thanks for uh, joining our, our call today. Uh, really appreciate the time and and the um, insight that you will be providing to everyone. Um, so going back, I. I I first would invite anybody, I'm just gonna go over some bullet points of what we went over in, in part one, um, which was insurance related, but I invite everyone to just go onto the website if they wanted to, and they can download a webinar version or even a podcast version of part one to give you a, a better understanding of what we discussed in, in part one if you weren't present and how it ties into what we're gonna be discussing today. Um, but some of the, the high overviewing points that we, that we um, went over were, the needs for um, types of commercial policies for tech companies and the public users, and how insurance companies um, uh, develop them and define them and then obviously de- deliver them to potential customers. Um, specifically, we kind of focused in on product liability policies and what they cover, things like illness and side effects, um, or lawsuits from illnesses and side effects, and then also like product malfunctions and defects and things like that. And that's how we, we kind of, abutted against the the scope of of the legal aspects of product liability outside of just what the insurance companies are providing as as protection from a from a business perspective to um, prospective clients um, uh, currently uh, the, indus- the industry provides insurance policies um but only via like i forget what they're called but like a third not third party smaller regional Carriers rather than you know the big carriers the big companies and um, you know that comes with a lot of exclusions and excessive costs because they really don't understand the industry per se there and, and the regulations are, are rather weak right now so. Um, due to the new industry as we we're as I was just saying there's not a lot of understanding about the risks that the industry um, currently um, presents to to end users to patients. And um, also to to company owners themselves. Um, A lot of times, uh, from our interactions, uh, people will think because they've been in the cannabis space, you know, illegally or legally for some period of time previous, that they really understand um, risks, but that's really not the case. They don't really understand the products from an objective scientific perspective or the processes or, um, you know, any other aspect of of the product lifecycle. So that means that the risks aren't really understood. So the insurance companies don't really understand those risks because they're not really identified and brought to light. Um, and then also there's, you know, supply chain throughout. I mean, there's there's risk to the supply chain throughout the whole product um, manufacturing, whether it's uh, raw materials and ingredients that a company obtains to be able to produce a product and then all the way through manufacturing and then through distribution. Um, we talked about risk all throughout there and how um, insurance companies understand it on a very limited basis, um, but with further understanding, it gives um, further risk management principles that, are, that can be applied to, to their practices and then also to the to the license owners and, and the product owners' um, practices. But I think the, the, the main point that really came out of the whole discussion was um, insurance is not a substitute for manufacturing a quality product. And that's why entities like QA Canada um, are still relevant and still robust even within mature industries that are decades old because you need to have this, this strong quality insight and, and understanding of principles and practices to ensure that you're making a quality product and that your operation is running in a quality manner because it's not just about the, the um, monetary liabilities that you might present it as, a, as a product owner but then there's also potential criminal aspects, or you know, legal aspects that even cover monetary, from a, from a civil perspective, and that's really where we segue into into this part two, and why we felt it was imperative that we had a part two because it's really this whole other realm of a company, an insurance company can protect companies to some some um, um, level, but really there's a lot of other legal implications that are that are probably far more um, damaging and and at risk or puts companies at risk of those of those types of uh, repercussions.
1: Thank you, John. I wanted to jump into our first topic next. Um, this is really where the initial reports from customers start. And John, it's on to put you on the spot again. I wanted you to really offer some historical perspective uh, as we start out here to talk about the appropriate measures that companies should really put in place to manage customer complaints
0: so you know I think uh, what we always emphasize from a from a quality assurance perspective is is not quality control which is a reactive process Um, although that's obviously a a very important element of quality Um, but really being proactive um, uh, understanding and identifying risks throughout your operations and, and mitigating or eliminating them if possible it um, is is imperative to having a successful business in a, in a regulated industry and you know along with that through those practices you get a better understanding of your products and your product risks and your processes and your process risks and you know like we were saying before your supply chain risks those are all elements of objectively evaluating all the systems and and practices within your operation and assessing them properly and saying okay, these are the risks that we that we have that we know whether they're whether they're required to be identified by law or not. These are the risks that we know. How can we go? How can we best go about mitigating them or eliminating those risks and increase um, you know uh, process efficiency and and product efficacy and things like that? Those are all critical elements that we look for as outputs within our practices.
1: Thanks and. I guess we'll just jump over to the legal implication piece, um, Adam. Would you mind discussing here um, what it would mean, I guess, for those customers you've seen who have not taken those appropriate measures?
2: Sure. So I'll I'll keep my focus mostly with a a New York kind of frame of mind. Obviously, I'm based in New York. Um, products liability law can vary somewhat state to state uh, and at the federal level, but we'll we'll keep it focused for now on New York. Um, you have to understand that product liability law remains, at least in New York, what is a not reasonably safe standard? So products that are dangerous to use in society aren't foreclosed from being used as long as they are reasonably safe. And what that means will depend on the product, its ambit of use and misuse, the steps needed to be taken to make it its use reasonably safe, and then the precise factual circumstances in every case. So, if you are not, as a company, taking the appropriate measures to address uh, concerns, um, then you open yourself up to a variety of claims. And in product liability, uh, you know, there are times where you'll see 18, 20 different variations of legal complaints, be it negligence, uh, defective design. Breach of warranty, and there are various breach of warranties that can be raised. you know you open yourself up to all those different claims, and all of those claims have different legal requirements to be proven and to defend against. so if you're not taking the appropriate um, steps, then you're going to just be reactive and as John said, you want to be proactive and you want to make sure you have that quality assurance in place to best i guess help defend your company. Cause at, at, at some point, almost every company will be sued. It's just, it, it's just our nature in this country, unfortunately. Um, you know, it's a litigious society, but if you take the steps necessary to be proactive and set your company up for success, then, you know, people like me, when we come in and we look at everything you've done, then we have a better chance of establishing a very
0: strong defense on your behalf. Adam, so Bethany, if you don't mind, uh, we're going to deviate a little bit here, and I just want to jump in <laughs> sure. <cast> <laughs> myself because um, you know this discussion is just, can be just so robust. There's just so many things that always come up because, again, like Adam was saying, there's not a lot of precedence within this space. But um, so, Adam, what if an in industry like cannabis uh, does not have things like consistent methodologies for for testing? Um, um, uh, you know THC levels, or or any metabolites or, or cannabinoids. Um, as we know, it, it it varies from state to state, and there's not really an accepted, harmonized compendial methodology that's utilized, um, uh, or is known as the the compendial methodology for testing THC or, or anything like that. So, which leads to this variability. What what are the implications of of an industry that has those type of um, I guess variations and, and nuances that are that can be rather critical? Yeah, you know, especially if you're talking about things like hemp-derived CBD.
2: Obviously, everyone, you know, when the Farm Bill passed, although its regulations haven't been finalized, so that's a whole other story. When the Farm Bill passed, you know, there was all these discussions about 0.3% THC or less. It's considered hemp-derived CBD. It's no longer considered marijuana. You can ship it across state lines, and, you know, CBD oils blew up everywhere, and people are shipping them all over, and this, that, and the other. One thing you have to be aware of is, you know farmers can have their entire crop destroyed if their crop is considered hot for example you know it 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 goes above that that level well different as you mentioned different labs can have different testing you know uh compendiums in place and different methodologies in place and just depending on the lab you could get different you know results and so you as a company whatever it is you're you're producing if it's THC if it's CBD products whatever it might be you know if there are going to be claims you make on behalf of that product the best thing you can do because there is not a set established methodology for testing that every lab in every state uses the best thing you can do is test your product multiple times and be able to say you know okay well we've sent you know we were required by state law to test our product at one of the labs that we have. California, I think, has, you know, north of 25 or 50 labs. It could be, it could be in the hundreds at this point. You know, New York only has one, but you want to send your product to as many labs as you can feasibly, economically at least, uh, do it so that you have the evidence and the support to say, this is what I'm claiming my product. Has or is made up of, and here is the evidence I've used to back that up and here are the steps I've taken to main, to make sure that what I'm providing to you as my customer is exactly what I say it is
0: yeah, and, and you know I think that that goes to the point of what I was saying before about um, having product knowledge and understanding your product, how it behaves, and then also the results that you should be expecting. Um, from a process, this is why in industry we we do things like process validations because with process validation we expect a certain result. We expect a certain number statistically of passing elements or passing um, products that are gonna that are gonna be going through testing and and meet some type of specifications. Um, when you don't have product understanding and knowledge like that, it's hard to you know have an expectation. It's more a reactive process and crossing your fingers and hoping that something's gonna pass. Um, So yeah so i think that's that's pretty critical
1: and before we move on to the next topic i wanted to just touch on a last point um just keeping in mind that there's fiscal challenges behind this testing multiple times and we know there's not really a quality by design process in r d that's very robust so the specifications even though they exist there may not be a lot of historical knowledge behind them, um, so knowing these things and um, like keeping that fiscal challenge in mind, so Adams uh, defensive measures and John, what you said about preventive measures, can you give me a few like take home key actions? just keeping that in mind because testing multiple times is not <laughs> going to go over very well, uh, you know with with a lot of my customers.
0: Right, no, and 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 that's valid. And that's why when you um, when you develop systems and, and understanding so um, quality management systems and understanding processes and things like that, you can impart you know practices that don't require you to test with multiple labs, which is' it's, it's actually not encouraged within an industry. Um, you really want to have confirmatory results, but you don't want to try to test quality into a product. Um, and then say, okay, this I'm choosing the better results here, et cetera. Um, but with better process controls, um, you can limit your testing. It's really about understanding your product and what the outputs are supposed to be. Now, with respect to something like THC levels and the lack of harmonization to a, like a compendia methodology or something, those are things that are that are you're just not going to be able to get around right now because. Um, scientifically you're not going to be able to have that consistency because scientifically the community is not harmonizing that in that respect um, but that will come eventually and essentially you can get some element of of consistency by you know working with with certain labs and and having them if you can if in your state you can and having them um, you know uh, cross validate certain methodologies that you might you know uh, use internally at some point when it's allowed um, uh, basically confirming your results from a quality control perspective then also getting maybe some, some confirmatory um, analysis outside by a third-party non-biased um, lab. But having the same methodologies even internally can eliminate that variability and, and the, the um, uh, I guess, the potential that somebody might see you as trying to test quality into a product. You can eliminate that so i think it's those type yeah, of things I, and and then having control of supply chain and and making sure that maybe your supply chain meets certain um certification standards or something like that and incorporating that can those are all risk mitigating factors that you can that a company can take on and illuminate the inherent risk that's in this industry right now just being such a new industry and a new product i was going to say documenting
2: everything you've done yep you know obviously you need to know what the regulations are. If if your state says, if you're going to make, you have to offer these three products of these three THC levels and you offer product A, B, and C, and you have your own internal testing and you say, okay, my internal testing showed A, B, and C. You've documented all of that, how the, how the testing was done, where it was done, who performed it, you know, how it was performed in a, in a uh, sterile environment, et cetera, et cetera. And then you, it's required to be sent to an external lab in New York. We have one. Okay. I've sent it to, The lab in New York, their results came back and matched mine within the acceptable, you know, variable range of, you know, whatever it might be. And this way, you've documented everything so that if someone purchases your product and says, no, it, it did this, I sent it to this place, you know, you can then turn around and say, I was required as a company to do X, Y, and Z. Not only did I do X, Y, and Z, and here's the proof of it, but I also did A, B, and C. And as long as you have that documentation, it goes a long way. Being able to defend against any complaint that a customer might bring against you. 100%
0: agree. Yeah,
1: that's an yep. excellent point. Yep. Yep. Excellent point. Um, so Adam, I wanted you to start off here because this has a he- really heavy legal connection. So can you provide us an overview where products have been misrepresented and led to a breach of express warranty?
2: Sure. Um. So there have been times where people will allege that their product is organic, for example, or that it is this, it it contains this level of, you know, additives or what have you. Um, And one of the things, you know, if you're going to claim your product is organic or it contains X amount of THC and it doesn't, then you're going to open yourself up to a breach, a claim of breach of express warranty. So, in order to sustain such a claim, what you what you want to understand is that it, it requires a couple of elements. First, there has to be a promise made by you as the company to the buyer that relates to the goods, right? So you're claiming to your buyer, you're promising your buyer that your cannabis product can is X. It, it has X amount of THC or what? And that's part of the reason they're purchasing it. it's part of the basis of the what we would call in the legal legal form the bargain um second that you know um the plaintiff would also have to prove that you know any description of your product is made part of the basis of the bargain again i'm selling you an organic type of THC well that's part of the reason you want to buy it it's organic it it's, doesn't have anything in it that's part of the reason they're buying it and then third um any sample or model that is made part of it. So once that's established, um, the purchaser must then show that the seller's product fails to conform with the initial description or other statutory requirements, which I'm not going to get into because it'll bore everyone to death and we talk for days on it. Um, But, you know, you see those things and if that occurs, then you've now got a breach of express warranty or claim for breach of express warranty. and you have to be careful because there are cases out there that, that support it. And when it occurs, you know, you, you can't start making claims that your, your product does this and then it doesn't. It just it leads to all sorts of, you know, regulatory claims, obviously legal action. You could have, you know, federal agencies come in, um, send you warning letters, things like that, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little later. But but have definitely occurred uh, within this space.
1: Yeah, we've seen that for sure. That's where we get a lot of our lessons learned and set standards set. Um, so bouncing over to you, John, beyond reaching out to legal counsel, what are the companies that you work with doing to ensure that the statements that they're presenting to customers are are valid claims?
0: Yeah, so um, I, I think ultimately one of the preventative measures that if money wasn't a concern, <laughs> Um, a company, I would say, for every company to have a regulatory affairs representative or um, department, but in this time probably just a representative that understands the regulations not only of the cannabis space but also the other adjacent um, industries, dietary supplements, food, drugs, um, and understanding that dynamic and and, and how those products are. Um, Are established or identified uh, via criteria and then applying that knowledge to the cannabis space and and the reason being is um i think this is you know through conversations and through interactions within the space with clients or with just people in in the space itself you know one of the arguments always made is you know why is cbd why is it not a dietary supplement? Why is it not considered a you know a generally recognized safe ingredient for food, et cetera, et cetera? And unless they understand these other adjacent um, code of federal regulations and 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 um, criteria that are that are defining these other products, they're not going to really understand the risks, or they might not really understand the risks that they're putting themselves at within this space, because it's just we don't have that guidance, we don't have the the um the rules so to say to be able to follow on how we manufacture properly or or how we do these things so it's, it's really not just about quality also it's about, but it's also about understanding the regulations and how they apply um, from a legal perspective and that's where you get that tie-in um where legal is is directly correlated with regulatory affairs which is directly correlated with quality assurance in you know more robust uh, companies
1: yeah and I I guess my next uh, point on this is really for for both of you um what companies or who I guess is most at risk um and if you could give some thoughts around that
0: Well I you know I I think um you know the companies that are able to basically sustain in this space for a long time that fly under the radar they obviously have uh, a larger exposure to, exposure of their products to the population. But r- to me, really, it, it's hard to define exactly because it, the industry is so vague in a lot of respects right now, um, especially for something that we categorize as, as essential within like, you know, during this pandemic and and really correlate with uh, a lot of the, the pharmaceuticals and, and controlled um, substances in that respect. Those those products are so highly scrutinized that a company would never be able to really fly under the radar in the same manner and be able to expose such risk to the to the population. But currently, this this industry is, it allows that. And um, I've I've said it before, and sometimes it's just so egregious the some of the things that I've seen done within the space over the years. Um, but you know, companies cut corners and they, and they do whatever they're mandated to do and are able to do. But Unfortunately, there's they're playing that fine line of 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 being criminally or civilly liable, and then also you know being able to get away with it, flying under the radar. So to me, that's really the 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 biggest risks, or the you know the I, I would I, I would say the
2: companies, like John said, the ones that that are a bit more cavalier, um, you know, or a bit more. I don't want to say reckless, although in some cases it it really is a case of recklessness, but the companies that, that think, oh, well, you know what? Everyone's jumping into this space. And I'm not, a, I'm not an acreage. I'm not a canopy. I'm not a med man, I'm, not a, I'm not a cure leaf. I'm just a little company in New York, Massachusetts, wherever you might be. I can probably get away with things, sell my product, keep my costs down, and make some claims that'll bring more people in. And I'm not going to get dinged by anyone because I'm so little. And there's so many people out there. And that's that's really, you know, it's, it's a dangerous mindset to have. You know, uh, John, you and I have talked in the past, you know, there was the, uh, the former NFL player, Turley, I think it was. He got a, he was, he has a CBD company and was making claims that, you know, CBD could prevent COVID-19 or would cure it. And got a warning letter from the FDA. And it just boggles the mind, you know, where people make these claims. And it's not just, you're not just opening yourself up to these breach of express warranty or breach of implied warranty of merchantability or all these other products claims. You open yourself up to a lot of different claims. I mean, it's, you know, if a lawsuit comes in against you, you may not just get a products case. It it may not just have products claims. You could have RICO claims in there. You could have, you know, negligence claims in there. There's a lot that can go into it. It's just, you know, some of those, those are the companies that I look at as being the ones that are, are most at risk for for these lawsuits. And despite people laughing at times thinking, oh, well, I would never do that. Well, clearly people do. <laughs> and, you know, there's no guarantee that that what you put out there Uh, won't lead to these criminal penalties. I mean, even just putting a a client or a customer, you know, page for customers to post their reviews can lead to warning letters from the FDA. And so like you said, you know, if you're not aware of these adjacent industry standards, you're running the risk of, of having your company shut down or having your product pulled. And, you know, that can... Just taking it one step further, if all of your product is then seized and you no longer have a viable business and you had investors, well, you've opened yourself up to E&O and D&O lawsuits. So, you know, from a legal perspective, it just, it, you just see the the tentacles,
0: you know, where the branches
2: of a tree just spiraling.
0: Yeah, that, that's a great point, Adam. And, and also to piggyback on that, um, you know, who knows what type of exposure that provides um, insurance company or provide you to insurance companies negating a policy for some various exclusion that they presented in there that you were negligent or that you didn't, you know, you were marketing a product that you shouldn't have been marketing. I, I think the fact that um, so many people don't even realize that an ingestible CBD product that's, that's sold on, you know, that you see anywhere, there's thousands of them, they're, they're all illegal. It's it's they they I don't think they really understand that because as people we see these products all over and we say it has to be legal why how could I, how else could it be sold like this but uh, unfortunately this industry for for some years now is is really um, sometimes driven by snake oil salesmen um, uh, for lack of a better term because you know CBD has been purported as the end all be all cure all and it, all you need is you know some parent to give some cbd product to some kid and the kid dies for whatever the reason because there's an adulterated product that's contaminated and i can only imagine what the legal implications could be in in a situation like that
2: yeah and you know it's interesting because one of the claims you see a lot in products cases are you know a breach of implied warranty of merchantability right so that's that's when a product is not fit for the ordinary purposes for which such goods are, are used right so and there's there's a UCC um, Uniform Commercial Code statute for that. But it, the, the, the basis of it is, you know, a plaintiff can recover when they show that a product was not minimally safe for its expected purpose. Um, and the focus of these types of claims uh, is whether the product meets the expectations for the performance of the product when it's used in the customary, usual, and reasonably foreseeable manners. Well, we're a new industry. So what's a reasonable, usual, and foreseeable manner. And what this type of a claim does is it frees a plaintiff from having to prove a strict product liability case, including proof of reasonable alternative design. So in, in a breach of implied warranty claim, the inquiry isn't whether or not there was a safer design available. You know, you, They don't have to do that. Um, it's irrelevant to the merits of this particular claim. Um, A breach of of a warranty actually depends on on a showing of whether the product was not minimally safe for its expected purpose, regardless of whether they could could have made a safer product. Um, And so, again, because it's such a young industry and because people haven't necessarily enacted these quality assurance measures that your company helps them put in, You know, you run the risk of all these different claims and it really is. I mean, it's it's there's a lot that you have to do. I mean, if you think about what a uh, a a a pharmaceutical company sets
0: up for its quality assurance, that's how you should be approaching this this industry. Yeah, I I agree. It's though very cost intensive, resource intensive and things like that. um, That's eventually where the industry will be moving. And uh, whether you're a small company or a big company or not. You're gonna to have to take those those measures and and establish those systems so it's we always whether biased or not we always um endorse being proactive and phasing those practices in so you're not slammed at the last minute but um you know in our opinions as quality professionals it's it's better for your overall product and company anyway in the long run
1: thanks guys and, and I want to make sure we move on to the next topics so we have time but i I think that that is a really good point as well because that's from part one, that's a lot of what we talked about in the insurance industry because they have a lot of experience in similar industries. They're basing a lot of their assessments on those other industries too. So it's a that's a good parallel there, and I appreciate that. Um, we're going to continue on with the risks of liability again, um, legal heavy here. So Adam, I'm <laughs> I'm going to go back to you. And while we were prepping for this, we talked a few about a few cases, and I what stuck out to me was that there was retailers that were held liable for products that they didn't manufacture that. So as a distributor being held liable, um, or how can a distributor be held liable for a product they didn't make? And I think uh, exploring that a little bit would help some of our um, dispensary clients and and talking through that a little bit, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah.
2: you know. Yeah, you know, product liability law varies state to state, as we said. But, you know, unfortunately, you know, everyone in the chain of distribution is potentially defended. So that means manufacturers, distributors, suppliers, and the store, the the, the little itty-bitty mom-and-pop shop that may sell a vape pen, right, mm-hmm. could potentially all be on the hook. Um, now, And and what may surprise some people is, you know, the fact is, is, from a legal perspective um, the plaintiff's attorneys nine times out of 10 will sue everyone, not because they necessarily think that, you know, target, for example, is responsible for a defective product, but they're going to sue everyone one because they can. And two, because it'd be malpractice if they didn't. So even if you didn't do anything wrong, you've, requested all of the testing uh, you know, uh, requirements, or you've requested all the, the testing documents from your manufacturer and you've gotten them and, and whatever, you could still be named and you will likely be named because if you don't, if they can't get the manufacturer because they were a fly-by-night company and they went bankrupt, well then they've gotta have somebody to hold accountable and they're going to try and hold you accountable then as the retailer of it. So, you know, it's not that you won't be able, the, the non-manufacturer defendants, the retailers won't be able to get out, but, you know, usually what they're going to try and do is they'll, they'll try and keep the viable manufacturers in, but if not, and that's something to keep in mind here, especially in this space, um, you can be named and you likely will be and there's a chance you could be kept in the case and that's almost as expensive sometimes if not more than whether any sort of judgment comes down against you
1: well thanks for those nightmares
2: (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) sorry
1: no no I, i so i i guess like going back to like my experience and i know where john comes from too We focus, like in our audits and assessments, we focus a lot on the holder of the license, licensee. So, like, but of course, you walk through the full supply chain of the product because they're responsible for the product as it moves through the life cycle. So, um, John, can you offer some insights of what companies can do? And I guess what we're talking about is across the supply chain. Um, to shed some light on those preventive measures for this risk, because now uh, we're seeing as it applies to the full supply chain.
0: Yeah, so as you were saying, in in our uh, past lives, uh, the product owner is really ultimately responsible, and it's why um, regulations and standards basically demand um, that you have a, a supply chain that's that's qualified, essentially going through a supplier qualification process, understanding the risks of the materials that they present, whether they're critical or non-critical, and then also understanding how those those ingredients or those um, components interact with your product that you're gonna be selling to people, uh, basically the whole gamut of understanding um, product and process risk. Um, But we extend that out to the suppliers because ultimately we're responsible. So we wanna make sure that suppliers are, are manufacturing um, with good practices that they're actually, um, you know, checking the things that they're supposed to be checking, meeting the criteria that they're supposed to be checking, and they and they have all documented objective evidence to to support this. Um, in this industry, it's 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 obviously different, even though um, there might be uh, liability to the license holder, which might be a a, a manufacturer, a, a vertical operation, um, or or anything like that. It doesn't always transfer over to say a state laboratory i imagine it would be very hard to sue a state laboratory who's responsible for providing results on release of product that's going to be going out to the to the market but with that said that's currently what we do now that's not really something that's sustainable this industry will will morph and evolve into the way other industries are that we come from to where you will have um entities that 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 can be held responsible in some respects um, and surely, if you're a provider of of, of components or raw materials, um, that's a, a private ancillary company. Um, you can be, like Adam was saying, still be held liable. And and even if a court decision isn't, um, uh, I guess, uh, judged against you, there's the whole you know PR you know nightmare that you probably be presented with of having to repair your image in an industry that's that's so new and so competitive. That uh you know the, the damage to that is could be excessive besides the cost could be you know could destroy your company itself
1: um yeah, I wanted um Adam to offer thoughts on that too i that's kind of my follow up question He's Adam, you alluded to regardless of the outcome the of the case or once the company is accused of something you you still have your legal battle and you have your you know p r nightmare, as John just said so. Um, can you just offer some thoughts on this, how you've guided clients to really overcome from cases like this?
2: Yeah. You know, it's, it's tough because you have to going into any sort of business, you have to be aware that there is a potential um, for lawsuits to come down the pipeline. Uh, And in this industry, it's, it's different from a lot of others, you know, in, in, in most industries, whatever it might be trucking, pharmaceutical, you know, you know, selling t-shirts, right? You can ship your product across the country, across the world, right? You can ship it anywhere. And so you can build a national or international brand. You know, people do it on Instagram, they build their own brands. But in in this industry, you know, unless you're talking about hemp derived CBD, if you're going to be focusing on adult use cannabis, you are a state based company. You can't ship your product. So if if all of a sudden lawsuits start coming down the pipeline and you're swept up in one, you know, as John said, it, it, it's not just the cost of the litigation, which can be expensive and time consuming, even if you win. A lot of my cases will will go on for two, three, four, five years. I have a case that's 10 years old right now, and it's still going. Um, but separate and apart from the legal costs, you know, you're trying to break in Or establish yourself in an industry that is uber competitive that you know is state-based and so you're fighting with everyone else within your state for a very small piece of the pie you can't try and bolster your business by expanding into Nevada if you're in California or expanding into New Jersey or branching down into the Carolinas if you're on the East Coast you know you can't do it you're you're stuck in your state for the time being until the feds deschedule cannabis so Understanding that and making sure that you've done everything possible to try and avoid litigation, and then also get out of litigation as soon as possible, you know that goes a long way to protecting your company from
0: financial damages. And you know, to to just uh, one question I would present to any cannabis-related company is, I would say, reach out to a PR crisis management um, specialist ask what their hourly fee is and what their cost would be in, you know, from their experience as far as dealing with crisis and and, and really take that into account when you're deciding what you want to do and, set, and setting up your company. Because um, from my experience, the cost um, can be astronomical, surely as much as any legal proceeding in some respects.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. And I, before we move on to questions, um, Adam and John, do you have any final thoughts on any of the topics that we covered?
0: I don't but I'll defer to Adam since this is really his scope of expertise in this respect. You know, I would I would just and and you know,
2: Bethany I I, I laughed when you said, you know, those nightmares uh, that I <laughs> present to everyone, you know, I, I, as as a lawyer, you know, we are reactive in a lot of instances. John and your company are the ones acting proactively in a lot of cases to try and help avoid needing my services. I would just tell people you know when you've started up your company make sure that you've got those types of quality assurances in place make sure you've hired a good general counsel as well and be aware of what lawsuits are pending and and be cognizant of the fact that products liability you know encompasses a, a large number of claims and within this industry we're not just seeing products cases you know sitting by themselves we're seeing products claims tied in with RICO claims, and you need to understand that just because, you know, one specific judge or court rendered a decision, you know, of X, that doesn't mean another jurisdiction is going to come down with the same decision. So you just need to be very cognizant and, you know, cross all your T's, all your I's, and, and really do everything you can so that if and when litigation does unfortunately land on your doorstep you've got enough evidence and documentation there to hopefully get yourself out of
0: it as quick as possible
1: yeah thank you for that
0: you know bethany I, i'd you. also like to just add one point um mm-hmm. on that i think it's 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 critical for people to understand especially license owners and people that are deeply involved in this industry that when you look for subject matter experts that are that are experienced whether it's legal or whether it's you know Services like we provide or anything like that somebody who's only been involved in the cannabis industry is not always the best course of action. You, you might think that way and say, well, you know they've been in the industry five, six years or whatever, but really when you when, when you're talking about certain aspects, practical experience and how to apply that practical experience um, most effectively is really the critical element and and why we value it you know in, specifically in our industry why we value um, experience and age and things like that. Because you know, if I, if I have only done practices within cannabis space, which is very fragmented and, and undefined in a lot of respects, I probably have not had a lot of practical experience on, on what's coming down the road. So I just tell people that all the time that really um, don't get so enamored by somebody having five or six years of cannabis experience if they don't have um, other experience outside of that scope of, of industry. Hmm.
1: It's an interesting perspective, and I appreciate that. Um, So, I want to open up for questions. Uh, Let me make sure everyone can come off of mute. Um, Okay, so everyone should be able to come off of mute if you wish. I'm going to kick it off with just making sure that we have a solid understanding of action items to take home, some homework. Um, So, what can my company do right now. Not a whole lot of investment. <laughs> something easy. Uh, just wanted to get some homework for the team.
0: So from, I'll go first, then I'll let Adam go. Um, really, in short, it's it's really about identifying risks and mitigating or eliminating those risks based on what the criticality is. So it's, it really comes down to understanding all the things that we've talked about within your organization and really understanding risk management and how to identify those those risk points and and mitigate them or eliminate them and from my perspective i would say the, the two easiest
2: things to do are one understand the regulations within your state and to a certain extent make sure that that those regulations are applied uniformly some you know municipalities may have certain tweaks to those regulations but but understand those first and foremost for where your company is located and then two, um, just document everything you do. Uh, you know, telling me three years after something happened, I did X, and you have no documentation to prove it, puts me in a very difficult spot to try and defend your actions. So document everything and keep keep a keep that documentation for whatever period of time it is, five years, three years, whatever you set up. But but document everything.
1: Very good. Um, any questions from any of our participants?
2: Hi, this is, uh, this is Zach Helms. Uh, John, Bethany, thank you very much. It's another really informative uh, panel you've done here. And Adam, thank you too. Um, we, this is going to be awfully specific to the, the type of business that we engage in, but I'm curious uh, how a company like ours who deploys their brands through contract manufacturers might be able to additionally mitigate risk. And I guess that question's for any one of the three of you uh, who might have some insights on that. Obviously, we can, we can look and make sure that those manufacturers are doing appropriate vendor qualification, that they're GMP-certifiable, those sorts of things. But is there anything additional for a company who licenses brands to go to market, but doesn't actually take any, ever take ownership of any cannabis? What else can we do to protect ourselves?
0: so i i think from zach thank you for the question um i think from a quality perspective it's 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 you can do things like ensuring that a company is certified iso qualified or anything like that but it's really um the level of scrutiny that you apply to that vendor um how robust your qualification process is um do you and and i'll just give some examples here um i might if I have a supplier qualification program. I might uh, find a new supplier and defer any type of on-site assessment um, for them because they have this certification but I might need to be on you know on-site boots on the ground in a year because I need to verify that they're doing what they say they're doing. But in, in, in the initial aspect I can accept them because you know they provided their certification. I know that they're meeting certain standards um, as per these non-biased registrars that are out there and they have provided maybe some other objective data sops and things like that that show me that they have these systems and processes set up within an organization so i can kind of take that and say all right um that that mitigates my my potential risk for the time being but um it's a it's a it's a non-critical component so i don't need to be on site right away but i'm going to be there later on so i guess my point would be that it's really about the the um robustness in which you evaluate or or, or hold suppliers accountable, which can really be the the, the defining um, uh, defining criteria or element there of of mitigating risk for you as a as a as a person who who contracts out these these manufacturing processes. Yeah, I, I would say, Zach, um, you know, if you're contracting
2: some of these things out, that making sure that no modifications are made to the product by the person purchasing it, um, it you know. It sounds funny, but people do it all the time. And, and, you know, while a manufacturer has a non-delegable duty to to produce a product that's not defective, that responsibility is always gauged when it leaves the manufacturer's hands. So you just want to make sure that that they're not making substantial modifications. You know, ultimately, modifications like that, you know, from the original condition that are made by a third party, um, which can then render that product unsafe. Aren't the responsibility of the original manufacturer, but you know you don't want to get into that situation where you're having
0: to just then litigate that. So that would be one thing I'd say. And, and you know, to piggyback on that, Zach, um, if you do end up in a scenario to where you need to modify that, because that happens very often in the industry, you need to have that defined and and agreed upon, and basically, as Adam said, um, objectively documented um, that you're aware of the certain risks that you're doing when you're when you're you know altering or 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 differing the product that they that you're getting from from the supplier and then putting out to the market those are all the pretty standard practices within other industries but surely not within this industry that's wonderful thank thank you both
1: any last questions we just have a few minutes Okay, I wanted to, um, of course you're welcome to reach out to John or Adam for any further questions. Um, this recording will be available on the QA Canada website and we'll publish it out on LinkedIn as well. Um, any suggestions for other forums are, are also welcome. Uh, thank you so much for your participation today, everyone.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Bethany. Thank you, Adam. Thanks, guys. Have a Thanks. great day. You too. Bye. You too. Bye. Bye. Bye.